This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we ask how Christian theology can navigate in the shadow of the Holocaust. How do we deal with global and universal suffering as believers? We talk about this subject with Loyola University professor Jean-Pierre Fortin. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Jean-Pierre Fortin. He is an assistant professor of spirituality at the Institute for Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. He received a doctorate in philosophy from Laval University in Quebec City and a second doctorate in theology from the University of St. Michael's College in Toronto and a licentiate in sacred theology from Regis College in Toronto. His research aims at finding ways to address the religious concerns and questions of 21st century Christians, integrating the inputs of philosophy and experimental science with those of theology to provide a more faithful account of human existence. Today we'll be discussing his recently released book, Grace in Auschwitz, A Holocaust Christology. In the book, he proposes a Christian theology of grace emerging from and corresponding to the Jewish experience of the Shoah. We'll also be talking about his more recent work with a grant from the Yale Center for Faith and Culture, looking at joy in the face of suffering. Jean-Pierre Fortin, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you very much. I'm happy to join you. So you are looking at the notion of grace in Auschwitz. It is the death camp from Nazi Germany. It was the place where thousands went to die in a horrible way. How is it possible to talk about grace in a place like Auschwitz? The most natural answer to that is when you find yourself in such a place, that's precisely when you find the greatest need to, to see God and feel the greatest need for grace. That's precisely then and there that you need to have access to God. And so for us today, living in a post-Holocaust environment, and especially as Christians, knowing that the Holocaust took place in the heart of Christian Europe, then we want to enter Auschwitz as Christians, understand what this experience tells us about our being Christian in this day and age and how we can manage or find new ways to gain access to God. So when you say to enter the Holocaust as Christians, help me to understand the context of that statement because I could hear that statement in like three different ways. And one of the ways would be the Christian history of supersessionism, the notion that somehow Christians have taken over the mantle of promise from God from the Jews, and therefore they somehow are deserving of the fate that they got in the hands of the Nazis and others. But I I get the sense that's not the way that I should be taking it. So when you say that we should enter the Holocaust as Christians, help me understand and help our listeners understand what you mean by that. It's a multi-layered experience, of course. There's the experience in which 
Christians are involved in the fact that the Jewish identity has been negated for so long. And so, of course, Christians have to take responsibility for that. And how do you do that? By retrieving your own Jewish identity as Christians. And so, in a deeper way, that's what I'm inviting Christians to do, is to retrieve and assume, take responsibility for the Jewish identity of their very Savior, Jesus Christ himself, and the fact that he was a first century Jew who lived his religiosity as a Jew. What does it mean then for us to relate to Christ as a Jewish person and a Jewish savior? Can we not find Christ present and alive in the Jewish identities of those who suffered most in our day and age? And that's precisely what I invite people to do in this book. I'm hearing, for example, John Paul II referring to Judaism as Christianity's older brother. Is that a reflection of what I should be hearing when you say that we should be recovering our Jewish identity as Christians? I like the image of the older brother, but I'd like to invite us to go even deeper and think of this brother as living within us. If we really want to understand who we are as Christians, we can't think of ourselves apart from the Jewishness of our own identity. And if we retrieve that identity, then we'll be able to relate in a very positive way with the Jewish survivors of the Holocaust and the people who went through this ordeal. Then we can share the common anguish, despair, rejection even, resistance, anger at God, and then be able to redefine our relationship to God in a way that we'll speak to people who seek for God today and have such a hard time finding traces and signs of God's presence in the world. And so what I'm hearing you saying is that in order for us to understand the suffering that Jewish people have endured, we're going to have to kind of get in touch with our own suffering. Is that a fair characterization? Precisely. And I even dare to argue, and that's one of the other major assertions of the claims made in the book, is that we might actually have to take away certain understandings of grace that might be preventing us from getting in touch with our suffering. How so? The post-Vatican II Roman Catholic theology of grace, especially I have in mind the theology of Karl Rahner, has a very positive outlook on God's offer of grace to all of salvation. It's like every human being receives God's self-communication and it changes them ontologically as if all the human person needed to do was to simply acknowledge this reception and then respond to it. But the Holocaust really speaks to us in such a way that it tells us that maybe human beings can prevent one another from hearing God in the first place and let alone offering an articulated and free response to that offer. So I want to argue that if we allow for grace or in God to become manifest in ways that are slightly or even radically different from those we are well acquainted with, have been raised to grow into understanding and thinking, we might actually be able to perceive God present in our midst, in our darker age, if I can put it this way. And so if I, if I hear you correctly, you're talking about Karl Rahner and the way that he's talking about grace and the reception of grace. And if I heard you, it almost sounds like contemporary Christians have taken thinkers like Rahner, and I'm also thinking about Jürgen Moltmann would be another example, and they've almost taken it as a way of getting cheap grace, of getting off the hook 
from suffering and just saying, oh, God approves of everything that I'm doing and I'm fine and all that I have to do is intellectually assent and everything will be okay. First of all, is that a fair characterization of the position that you've just laid out? It's one of the the sidetracking of the teaching that can be held in the current theological environment. Of course, I'm not blaming Ranner or Moltmann. Moltmann speaks from his experience of suffering in Second World War. And for him, the only God that speaks to 21st century people is the crucified Christ. It's the Christ who shares in the suffering of humankind and doesn't theorize about suffering or doesn't pontificate from on high, but actually provides grace and healing by undergoing the very challenge and trauma. So similarly, I think... The question is not about denying the truth or validity of Rahner's teaching or whatever people who follow him, who actually take over from him. The very positive perspective he has is very good in the sense that it makes God's message present everywhere and to everybody. But what we must not fall into is the kind of tendency to say that it's it's therefore all done for us. It's therefore all bright and shiny. It's all sunny. No, that's not what Ranner said in the first place. He still defended the classic traditional position that God is all the more incomprehensible the closer God gets to you. What this reminds me of is the notion, and this is a constant argument between Protestants and Catholics, so the empty cross, the notion of the Easter Jesus versus the bloody corpus that's there on the crucifix the one side points to the other and says, you're dwelling too much in the suffering. The other side says, you're dwelling too much in the sunny hope of Easter. How do we find that balance as believers? How do we live in the proper tension of both understanding the suffering, but also the release from suffering that Easter offers us? The risen Christ still bears his injuries and wounds. The grace of the risen Christ, of the resurrection, is actually channeled through his wounds. They are in a way healed and transformed, but they're still there. And we understand he is the risen Christ because we see still in some way a wounded body. You mean like when Thomas says, I I need to put my fingers in the wounds and Christ shows the wounds and says, put your fingers in. The wounds are still there. The things that killed him are still there, but they're no longer killing him. They've been transfigured in some way. They've been transformed in some way. What's happened to them? They have been transformed in such a way that they've become actually channels a place where we can encounter a God and receive grace from him. So we are not to deride our wounded bodies and wounded selves. We are to get into our experience of suffering and allow God to transform it from within so that we become different persons. And the the experience of suffering itself is transformed in such a way that other people and ourselves are able to perceive God there. And that's the kind of Christ that I wish... I could invite people to perceive in those most challenging times. And I think that the Holocaust survivors did that for us. We don't even need to create it as Christians. If we retrieve that Jewish identity, then we see this radical experience of suffering and we see these people who managed to preserve their humanity despite the prevailing conditions that denied everything human and everything godlike. Then and there, I think, and I believe that we find instances where God shows the freeing power of grace in the darkness itself. We're speaking today with Jean-Pierre Fortin. 
He's assistant professor of spirituality at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. We'll be back in a moment. Looking for signs of hope in the Chicagoland education scene? Bright Promise Fund for Urban Christian Education serves 15 schools in Chicago and nearby suburbs with scholarship funding for students and families in search of quality, faith-based educational options. Visit brightpromisefund.org to learn more about schools where students flourish. Good schools make for good neighborhoods. brightpromisefund.org. That's brightpromisefund.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Jean-Pierre Fortin. He is Assistant Professor of Spirituality at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. We're discussing his recently released book, Grace in Auschwitz, A Holocaust Christology. Viktor Frankl, in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, talked about his own experience in a death camp. And one of the things that he noted as a psychologist was that the people who managed to survive the death camps tended to be people who had some common traits. And I'm wondering if you feel comfortable sort of lining out what some of the common traits that Frankel saw were in his work. I just want to make a distinction because that's really interesting to see that there are several kinds of people who were likely to survive in the camps or more likely, I should say, because survival was clearly not what was intended for prisoners in the camp. Just to to be clear, the average survival time frame for a typical prisoner in the Auschwitz camps was three months. The average inmate could only have a 800 calorie intake per day and were working 12 hours a day, six days a week. And they were not dressed, clothed properly. They did not have suitable hygiene and they were not living in heated quarters. So they had to suffer the winter and the summer, all the the elements, almost directly. And they also had all kinds of problematic issues like diseases such as typhus, uh, dysentery, uh, lice. So all kinds of issues that were literally preventing them from, you know, assuming a basic mode of life and survival. And in that kind of context, many survivors stress out that three kinds of people were more likely to survive. And these people are the amoral, the immoral, or the corrupt. And what I mean by that is that the amoral were freer in the sense that they did not have or feel compelled to comply with ethical norms or principles. And so in this way, the conditions were such in the camps that if you abided by moral principles, you actually ended up killing yourself by trying to be faithful in a dehumanizing environment. You could literally be killed by trying to be faithful to justice principles, for instance. Philip Mueller, the former Sunder Commando, writes in his memoirs that he has seen a lawyer being killed because he denounced the conditions in which they were living. And he invoked the, the principle of law to do so. And he was killed right then and there. Mueller's assessment is even more amazing because Mueller says this poor prisoner did not know that humane rules of life, the principles of law, ethics do not apply in such a place as Auschwitz. And he was killed for that reason. 
So there's a sense in which it was necessary for the, the prisoners to put on hold moral principles or conscience or if they could manage to keep it alive in the first place. And I said the immoral or the corrupt because the easiest way to survive in the camps was to actually join the camp hierarchy. And in order to gain to access to these positions, then you have to adopt the ways of the SS jailers. So you have to actually start beating and torturing your fellow inmates. You contradict your own moral principles and you separate yourself or estrange yourself from the other Jewish prisoners in order to be able to enjoy a quality, a material quality of life. You have to destroy your inner quality of life and integrity. So when Frankel speaks of people who are surviving, and in his case, it's about people who entertain images of very positive and meaningful experiences or people who are meaningful to them. And he even goes so far as to say that these people don't need to be actually alive as long as you can positively entertain the vision of their presence in your life and the meaningful impact they have in your life. But I, I want to say that what he's claiming is actually... He is invoking a form of love that reaches beyond the mere existence of the person. The person is so meaningful. Her presence and involvement in your life are so meaningful that you can actually integrate the passing away of this person in the meaningful relationship you have with them. And in this sense, I think he's totally right that for the people who could manage to sustain this kind of inner life, and then defined relationships with people that are really positively meaningful, then they can also manage to find the energy, muster the courage to fight for their survival, because there is something over and beyond the camp itself. So if I'm hearing you correctly, there are people who may have survived physically the camp, by becoming amoral or corrupt and joining the commandos and in the in the beating of the other and the torture of the other inmates. But Frankel's talking about those that were able to survive with their inner life intact, with an integrity, is that fair to say? It's the most difficult thing to accomplish in the camps because the natural inclination of most inmates was to actually shut down their inner life because it was draining too much energy from them. It was demanding too much expanse in terms of a spiritual energy that they could not waste. And so when we look at the life of Christ, and particularly Christ in his moments of extremity, when he's hanging on the cross and he says the words like, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, would that be an example or an exemplar of the kind of interior integrity that we're talking about? Precisely. And that's why you have people like Robert Antenne, who's a French survivor from Buchenwald, who has a, an amazing anecdote where he relates prisoners reading the Passion Narratives in Buchenwald. And he just talks about it and it feels unreal because it feels like Christ's suffering is too light because he still is fully human. He still has healthy flesh on his bones. He doesn't have lice his mother is not being killed in front of him. All those things that are happening on a daily basis in the camps do not happen to Christ. And so for them, 
It's like Christ is privileged in the sense that he enjoys such a rich inner life that the camping mates could not enjoy. So it was a miracle or a grace in an expression of grace in and of itself if a prisoner could sustain that kind of inner life for a long period of time in the camps. Because the typical way of evolving or surviving in the camps was actually to progressively shutting down your inner lives and focusing more and more on your basic physiological needs, hunger and thirst. But we also have to note, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me as if, in one sense, the concentration camps worked as perfect death machines in many ways. And if they were simply that, that would be horrific enough. But the accounts that I've read those that were allowed to survive beyond the initial, you're off the train and you get picked either to go to the gas chamber, but you haven't been picked to go to the gas chamber, you, you get to live for a while in the camp. The camp wasn't just designed to kill you, it was designed to humiliate the humanity of you and to, and to, to, kill, to kill your humanness. Is that a fair characterization? Completely. I would go so far to, as to say that the camp system was devised in such a way as to prevent people from being able to die. It destroyed the human integrity and identity of the people, uh, diminishing them to the point where they were mere biological automata, robots or machines that you, whose life you can then take away without them experiencing it in any way human or recognizably human. So it's like all human traits or characteristics were, had become latent. And they were not no longer finding expression explicitly. And so they were reduced to a point where they were, they were just literally looking for food 24 hours 7. And most prisoners experienced that. And in, in that context, when we reread the testimonies, then it's all the more amazing. And for me, it spells or bespeaks of the expression of grace that these witnesses find instances where people in the camps manage to, to preserve their humanity, to stay alive as human beings, as persons, and manage even more than that to do more, uh, manage to help others recover their humanity, their lost humanity, by just being who they were in the camps and going against all that the camps were designed for. And by calling this grace, am I hearing you in saying the camps were designed so effectively to reduce people to automata, as you were saying, to reduce them to robots, that they could not themselves have had the strength to do this, but it had to be in some ways a divine intervention. Am I hearing that or is it? It's is that not, I, I mean that in a very positive sense. Not, it's not only that humanity is taken away in a negative sense, that's for sure the first stage, but... As it was being accomplished, the inmates and many witnesses just talk about it in a very open way. That's when and where they became most aware of the fact that uh, being human is superhumanly demanding. Following being true to yourself, if you truly face the challenge of being human in the real world and for them, it meant in Auschwitz at that time, is divinely demanding. It's not merely human demanding, humanly demanding. And therefore, for them, it's so amazing that as 
all moral ways of behaving, all ethical ways of behaving were taken out. The demands of being human were not. So as they were reduced to purely powerless creatures and extremely weak and powerless beings, they still foresaw the demands and the requirements of their being human. They, they did not lose that. And that's when precisely the involvement of God and grace become all the more patent and necessary. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Jean-Pierre Fortin. He is Assistant Professor of Spirituality at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. We're discussing his recently released book, Grace in Auschwitz, A Holocaust Christology. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Jean-Pierre Fortin. He's Assistant Professor of Spirituality at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. We're discussing his recently released book, Grace in Auschwitz, A Holocaust Christology. At the beginning of the last part of the conversation, I asked about Viktor Frankl. Now I want to ask about Emmanuel Levinas and the notion that Levinas has that when we see another human being's face, we become, and I'm paraphrasing Levinas here because there's an entire philosophy behind this, but the notion that it's beholden upon us to then care for that person infinitely. One of the things that is behind Levinas's thought on this is the fact of the death camps, the fact that that basic requirement of I'm facing another human being and that human being is making me in some way responsible for them, that broke down fundamentally. And it was Christians and a Christian culture in which that broke down. You, Jean-Pierre Fortin, are making these arguments from Christian theology and in many ways a Christian philosophy. How is it that you are using the master's tools, which failed us so miserably, to in some way try and rebuild this house? Uh, I'll try to, to, to answer your question by flipping Levinas's argument on its head, if I can put it that way. Because Levinas's argument, when he is making it, presupposes that we can see the face of the other. But that's precisely the problem in the camps. You can't see the other person's face because it has, it has been taken away. So the question is, how do you make the human face appear again in a place where the human face has been taken out and destroyed? The question is that. Levinas kinds of answer his questions by avoiding the problem, if I can put it this way. It's like he's philosophizing after the Holocaust and criticizing in light of the Holocaust, Western philosophy or pre-Holocaust philosophy. But he's, in a sense, not addressing the Holocaust because he supposes that the human face is there. But the problem is that all too often it is not. So how do you manage, and that's, that's a question I dare to ask in the book, how do you manage to retrieve the human face when it is nowhere to be seen? And that's where an insight from Bonhoeffer makes a lot of sense in that context. There comes a point where human beings who no longer perceive God in the world 
take it upon themselves to turn themselves into an abode for God so that God can be made visible again in the world. And I dare to argue that God becomes present by making those humans who make themselves available human again. And so that's the point. If you could see authentic humanity in the camps, then you were seeing not only a human face, but the face of God as well, the God-made human. And so when we talk about, and I'm, I'm profoundly moved by what you just said, I, I felt an emotional shock run through me when I understood what you were saying. So if I'm hearing you correctly, first of all, if God is absent, there were those in the camps who took it upon themselves to become vessels for divine love in order that God might be manifest in that space, in order that humanity might be manifest in that space. Am I hearing that correctly? Precisely. And it brings back a passage from the great novel from Albert Camus, The Plague. The main character, Dr. Ryu, is an amazing character. And he, he criticizes a Christian priest who just, you know, sermonizes about suffering. And he says, you know, the more accurate or appropriate or suitable perspective is that of a, a parish priest who actually goes out of his way to help people who are suffering and doesn't lecture on it. That's the kind of suffering or engagement in suffering we're talking about here. People who have such compassion that as they're losing their humanity, they actually turn their broken body into a vessel for the manifestation of divine life and power. And as they're losing their lives, they give life. And there's a point where they no longer look for their survival. They no longer look for just their own salvation. They are ready actually to give that away in order for others to be given or granted the opportunity to feel human and feel the divine again. Let's shift course a little bit because you now have a new project that you're working on beyond this book, Grace in Auschwitz, A Holocaust Christology. And the new project is something that is being funded by the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. But if you could tell us a little bit about what that is. This project actually is branching out from the Grace in Auschwitz because as we've, we've just mentioned, there are these people, these prisoners, who are given with the ability to actually become kind of temples for God in an environment where God is, is absent. And I just wanted to retrieve from within the Christian tradition examples of people who had done that. And this project is really about finding joy in the context of suffering. And I go back to the 13th and 14th centuries, listening to the voice of female mystics such as Julian of Norwich, or uh, Hadowich, or Mechtilde of Magdeburg, or Anne Catherine of Siena. And the idea is to understand how it was possible for these female mystics who were living in a context where their voice was being denied by the official channels of the church. They were not allowed to get theological educations, but they had a legitimate religious experience and mystical experience of Christ. And they had something they felt compelled to teach about God and how God was making God self-manifest to them in their very lives. And all of them conquer in the fact that they actually met Christ in the midst of acute suffering. And they experienced even the most profound form of joy. And that leads me to think and to hypothesize that 
joy does not depend, is not identical with happiness, but is actually a state or a feeling, a way of being that follows and results from an intimate communion with Christ. And that communion can take the form of communing with the suffering Christ, Christ as Christ is suffering on the cross. And the amazing piece of that is that we can therefore, if we can get in touch with the Christ that suffers as he suffers, and if one expression of grace is the possibility of sharing in in the very sufferings of Christ, then we can know or foresee that there is a joy that cannot be dampened by anything because it, it is the joy of communing with Christ without any distance, without any mediation. And this joy also is felt and experienced in the midst of suffering. Now, I'm an American, and so I have been raised to think of joy as, first of all, my birthright, and then also something that is the result of my own hard work. And at the end of the day, I crack open that beer, and that's supposed to be joy for me. And it's a very individualized kind of approach to this notion of joy. That is not at all what I just heard you say. And so when I talk about this individualized, self-centered model of joy in the American consciousness, how is that missing the mark in terms of what you're talking about when you're talking about joy and joyousness? It seems that this understanding of joy that you just described relates more directly with satisfaction. Mm. The satisfaction of getting a result for hard work, all the things or the trouble we've gotten into in order to go somewhere. The joy I'm trying to describe is not a joy that follows from something we do, at least not in and of itself. It can happen as we are doing something, but it's more a way of being. It's a connection. It's a relationship. It's even one might say a form of friendship with God. It's an intimacy, a companionship, a companioning where you are always in the presence of Christ, so much so that you don't want to be estranged from him, especially when he suffers. And so you enter his suffering and you feel joy even in that context. So it's not to deny the legitimacy of the perspective you described. It's not to say that happiness is useless. It's just to say that happiness does not describe or comprehends the whole of what there is in terms of joy. And that joy expands beyond to actually define a way of being where the outcome is allowed to come or not in the way expected. So if we commune with God in such a fundamental way, then we might get to the point where we don't need to get the payoff or the trade-off that we were looking for in the first place when we started doing this or that activity. And again, it speaks to the Holocaust, where there was no way for the inmates to actually think of an outside, an after, a beyond the camps. Why? Because the camps were designed to, to kill them. So for them, it was just getting through one more day, one more meaningless, never-ending day where you just work yourself, you kill yourself by working yourself out. The point is, if this kind of joy, the joy and trying to describe and understand better exists, then it means that you can find joy even when you find yourself in a totally meaningless or meaning-denying context and environment. 
And it's a joy, if I'm hearing you correctly, that comes from identifying with God, with identifying with the way in which God has chosen to be in the world, which if we look at the Christian example of that was a way that involved tremendous suffering, but it was suffering for a purpose and it was suffering for a greater redemption. So if I'm hearing you correctly, what we're trying to do is a transcendent identification. So I am in a horrible circumstance. I recognize that there is a power greater than me that has transcended that circumstance, and I am choosing to identify with that power. And in identifying with that power, I feel gratitude and I feel joy. Is that what I'm hearing? Another way to say the same thing is to say that getting to a point where we open ourselves to God in such a way that God indwells us and invites us to share in God's own life and God's own experience of the human condition in such a way that it transforms our human condition and enables us to change the world as well. We're speaking today with Jean-Pierre Fortin. He's Assistant Professor of Spirituality at the Institute for Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. We'll be back in a moment. So for those of you that are longtime listeners to Things Not Seen, you may be aware that I do another show called The Francis Effect with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan priest. Every couple of weeks, he and I get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Now, Dan, why should I be talking to you? Who are you? Who am I? I'm a Franciscan friar, a Roman Catholic priest, and a professor of theology here in Chicago. And That's a good question. I have no idea why you should be talking with me, but if people are interested in what a conversation between you, the otherwise uh, respectable host of Things Not Seen, and me, the not-so-respectable Roman Catholic priest and theologian, I think they should tune in. Yeah, they should definitely tune in. So that's The Francis Effect, and you can find it at francisfxpod.com. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Jean-Pierre Fortin. He's Assistant Professor of Spirituality at the Institute for Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. We're discussing his recently released book, Grace in Auschwitz, A Holocaust Christology. So you have given us a full banquet of a way of understanding the human condition in your analysis of the human condition at its most extreme. I'm wondering how this grounds out in your own life, if you're willing to allow me to go there. So talk to me about how you, Dr. Jean-Pierre Fortin, experience prayer. How do you experience hope? How do you experience the notion of joy in your own life? Do you find that these things that you are working on with your thought experiments about the Holocaust, are they applicable to you and your life? I'd say that they are applicable in the sense that they follow from my own experience and they respond to it. I was led to engage uh, discussing theology in or for about the Holocaust because I had personally experienced suffering that seemed to be meaningless and destructive. And after having been told several times that the distinction between destructive suffering and constructive suffering, I found it more and more problematic because it left all the people who are undergoing destructive suffering alone and abandoned. And the question for me was, if I find myself in a place where there is no light as far as I can see, how can I gain an access to God? How can I find a way to allow myself to see 
or to find God near me in a way that will help me see the light amidst the dark. And so I was at this point in my life where my vocation was not clear to me at all. And the way of living out my Christian faith was problematized by the fact that, that I had seen too many closed loved ones who were actually doing amazing Christian ministry, but were not able at the personal level to live the spirit of the gospel. And so I wanted to find a way to bring the two together. By reading testimonies from survivors of the camps, I just found out that they had done it, all the work for me and the worst of contexts. And so for me, how does it translate in my life? It translates in a very concrete understanding of it's okay to have an apophatic mode of prayer. It's okay not to be talking a lot to God and uh, to hear a lot to God in terms of God speaking to you. But in terms of feeling God's presence, always nearby, really close, accompanying you, like taking you by the hand and just bringing you where God wills you to go. It's also okay to allow for God to redefine your lives in ways that are totally unexpected. It's, it's good for you not to see, according to your own human terms, what your life is about. What is your true vocation? It's good to trust in God to the extent that you will allow God to lead you precisely when you do not see. It seems to me that if one were to take your notion of how this is working, so joy that is found in the midst of suffering and suffering that even when it is not seen to be constructive can still be understood as constructive. Oftentimes what I find is that people will take a really good theological idea and they'll strip out the theology from it and they'll just leave sort of an ethical philosophy behind I've been thinking about this as I've been talking to you in this conversation. I can't figure out a way to do that with this. I can't figure out a way to denature the grace out of what you're talking about because at every step it seems as if the first thing that we have to acknowledge is that there's a power greater than the person in the midst of the suffering that must be acknowledged. Is First of all, am I hearing that correctly? And you've thought about this a lot more than I have. Have I missed something? And there's a way that my atheist friends could make this operate for them as well. I'll simply use Pascal's great language, is that the human passes infinitely the human. And the first thing we need to recognize is the fact that what we are called to be as humans is we are infinitely beyond what we can do as humans. So we are aware of that fundamental orientation towards something that infinitely transcends our condition. And so the first gesture is humility. And therefore, you automatically set yourself in a prayerful mode of being. And then you, you set the pace for formative relationship or developmental relationship with God, with the transcendent. And even an agnostic or an atheist will argue that there's this fundamental openness of the human person to a horizon that can never be self-enclosing. You can never put the human person in a box if you are whatever kind of box it is, a physical box or a spiritual, an intellectual, a conceptual box. No, we always break through. 
using Heidegger's beautiful teaching when he was giving his lectures on what is thinking, what is thought, he used to say to his students, in order to be able to get out of this lecture hall, you need to already be out of it. If you had no ability to transcend the confines of this lecture hall by your thought, your imagination, all of your inner powers, you would never be able to get up, go reach the door and open it and leave. You need to constantly be outside. So what we need to do is to acknowledge that we're always outside of ourselves, outside of whatever limitations we want to impose on ourselves, on others even. So if we maintain this dynamic of being on the way, at the same time, we know we don't have it all, that the all, the fulfillment, the completion is outside of us. It's something we tend towards, we desire, we long for, we are in the move towards. And if we can maintain this dynamic understanding of the human person who's always invoking and convoking the transcendent, but understands at the same time that it is not the transcendent, per se, then we might have a much more healthy relationship to ourselves and to one another's and to God, ultimately. Well, Jean-Pierre Fortin, I, I'm blessed to speak to a great many different people in a variety of contexts on a variety of topics. I will say this is by far one of the most profound conversations I've had on things not seen so far, and I just want to say how much I appreciate you taking the time to speak to us. And I've been very moved by what I've learned, and I, I'm sure that my listeners will be too. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to you for uh, taking the time to welcome me on, on your show. I really appreciate it being able to share. So thanks again. Our guest today is Jean-Pierre Fortin. He is an assistant professor of spirituality at the Institute for Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. He received a doctorate in philosophy from Laval University in Quebec City and a licentiate in sacred theology from Regis College in Toronto. His research aims at finding ways to address the religious concerns and questions of 21st century Christians, integrating the inputs of philosophy and experimental science with those of theology to provide a more faithful account of human existence. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.